The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Our speaker tonight is uh, beginning his third year on our staff after graduating from the University of Washington. He came our direction uh, from the Inland Empire, Spokane, Washington, went to Mead High School. I know there's a, there's a lot of Spokane peeps in the house, which is awesome. Uh, he, he's gotten himself around. He's spent time in, in uh, the Middle East. He, he spent time in a place uh, called Tajikistan. A lot of people don't even know where that is, and I'm probably one of them, okay? Uh, so much so uh, he, that it has led him to being the guy that coordinates our missions. He's going to tell you more about that. He's the man that Twitter calls Shermanistan. We call him Sherms. He is, I, I'm kind of disappointed he's wearing a crew neck tonight because he wears a deep V-neck better than anybody else on the U-Men staff. Put your hands together for my friend, Chris Sherman. Perfect. Uh, I don't actually wear deep V's. I just wear like medium V's. Like, well, they're might, maybe they're supposed to be deep V's, but they just turn into short V's on me or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, my name's Chris. Like Ryan said, I'm on staff here. Thank you for coming out. I'm excited uh, for tonight. Um, and I guess before we get started, I just want to introduce myself. There's some people in here who don't know me. Uh, first things first, like Ryan said, I'm from Spokane. And a few things about my childhood that are important to know. Number one, I grew up a fat kid. Um, so, some people, <laughs> not only was I fat, I had a bowl cut for most of my childhood, and then I moved into bleaching my hair and frosting my tips. So, I was a lady killer, all right, from the very beginning. Um, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, yeah, I was fat, so it was, it was good and it was bad in some ways. I was never the best athlete, but I think it forced me to develop a little bit of more character than I would have had to otherwise. Um, so that's what I have to say about that. It was a good childhood. Um, the other thing about me is I grew up going to church. I grew up in a Christian home. And so, um, you know, church is very familiar to me. But like many of you probably growing up, I didn't really ever pay attention. I went to church more for social reasons than for anything else. And, you know, as I moved into high school, my faith was way more about the, the political issues I identified with than it was about how I treated the people around me. Um, and I'm not necessarily proud of that. It wasn't, you know, I look back in high school and I kind of just go, oh my gosh. I don't like running into people from high school because I was such a jerk sometimes. And so it's one of those things. But uh, I, Ryan said I came over here, graduated in 2006, came to UW, and thank God I found the inn. Um, I got plugged in here right away in my freshman year. And my freshman year, the inn was, more than anything, it was just a refuge. Um, I hated school my freshman year. Like Dana was saying, I, I got here, and I, really, I right away was just like, I don't want to be here. This place sucks. Um, and I was, I was really close to transferring back to a school in Spokane. Uh, but I stuck it out. And come spring quarter, things got a little better, and I got more involved just by playing sports at the IMA or coming here to the inn, whatever I could. That's just, I, I had to get involved, otherwise I was going to go crazy. And so I want to say right now, if you're a freshman here tonight, and you're at a place of going, I don't, I don't want to be here. I don't like UW. I don't like Seattle. I want to go home. Um, I encourage you to try to stick it out. And if you're going to stick it out, I encourage you to get involved somewhere. It doesn't have to be here, but we do have plenty of opportunities for you to do that here. Um, if nothing else, if you're sitting here tonight and you're in that place of going, I just I can't stand it here. 
I'd love to talk to you. I was there, and it does get better. So just know that. Um, second year, got more involved. Actually decided to join a core group here at the inn, and it was really not anything I meant to do. It was just my best friend was doing it. So I said, hey, let's do that together. And uh, I cannot even begin to say how formative that was for me in my faith, um, both just personally and faith-wise. It was the conversations we had, the studies we did, everything. It was, it was huge. Um, so that kept me going. That kept me going, kept me involved here at the end. And then my junior year kind of stayed at that level, plateaued. Uh, but at the end of my junior year, I went on deputation. And uh, I have a picture here. I got to go spend two months in <laughs> Bolka. No. Uh, I got to go spend two months in Bethlehem. And this is actually a picture of me and my team in Jerusalem. And you can notice, obviously, the Dome of the Rock in the background. And, um, that was incredible. I can't believe I got to go spend two months in Bethlehem and travel all over the West Bank and all over Israel. It was incredible. Uh, another very informative, or excuse me, formative and informative time in my life. Uh, came back from that, senior year, got on student leadership finally. <laughs> it's the only year I did student leadership here. Uh, and then after that, became an intern. Uh, this is me in my internship year. That's Michael, Liz, and Amber. And as you can tell, we were just the best interns ever. Uh, but I didn't really, I didn't plan on that. Um, I, at senior year, you could have asked me what I was doing, and I would have said, I don't know. And I think that's part of why I applied for the internship was because I thought, well, if I don't know what I'm going to do, I'd rather figure it out while I'm doing something that I believe in. And so I came here, and I worked as an intern. And uh, one of the things that happened that year uh, was that I got engaged. And... Um, so I met my wife, yeah, pretty awesome, right? Who would have thought? Uh, I met my wife, this is us on our wedding day. So yeah, you can tell she's pretty good looking and uh, pretty lucky guy. Um, but yeah, we met through deputation and the relationship blossomed from there. She, we didn't go together, but um, she was my team shepherd. So uh, she was kind of like leading my team and then we continued hanging out after that. So. Not, that won't happen to everyone if you go on depth, no promises, but uh, it has happened before. I'm not the first and I won't be the last. So uh, that's a little bit about me, but Ryan asked you guys a question uh, that I kind of want to engage really quick. Um, he asked you one thing that really gets you mad. In confession time, the one thing that really gets me mad is bad driving. Uh, classic guy, I know, I think I'm the best driver in the world. Uh, but really, when I'm in the car, I, I turn into such a jerk sometimes. And normally, I'm not just saying this, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. Like, ask people I spend time with, it takes a lot to get me mad. But when I'm in the car and someone is, for some reason, just not paying attention or impeding any of my progress, I get so mad. And uh, there's been so many times where I've gotten mad enough to, like, intentionally provoke someone else into getting mad. And it's just, it's pathetic is what it is. Because the car is the safest place for me to be a jerk. They can't hear me. It's not like they can get out and catch up to me. If someone's going to come after me, I'll just drive away, right? Like, it's, <laughs> it's the safest place to be a jerk. And so it's, I admit, it's pathetic. But that's the one thing that really gets me mad. And it's the one thing I do almost daily where I fail to love my neighbor. Um, and so it's ironic that I'm here tonight to talk to you all about loving your neighbor. Uh, but I guess I, I share that story to let you know that I'm not here tonight as some master of loving your neighbor. Um, I'm, I'm still figuring it out, too. And so as I, I might have a few things to say about it tonight, and maybe, hopefully, they sound good, but uh, just know that it's not coming from a place of going, I figured it out, let me tell you how to do it. It's coming from a place of going, hey, this is what I think, and this is what I want to try and do with you guys. So that said, uh, if we're going to get anywhere tonight, we're going to need some prayer. So will you guys pray with me again? I know. Um, God, thank you for tonight. Thanks for bringing us all here. Um, God, I know that 
you have been with me in the process of preparing for tonight, so I ask that you would just help me to trust you with that. And I know that sometimes the things that I'm trying to say uh, can be very different from the things that uh, actually saying God. And so bless these words, God, and I know that you already have, and uh, be with us tonight. Amen. All right, so loving your neighbor, right? The series we're doing, love, everything hinges on it. Um, comes from Matthew 22, and I'm going to put it up. I'm going to have Matt put it up on the screen just so you can kind of see. We've we've gotten through the reply of the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Um, last week we heard Janie kind of expand on that commandment to love the Lord your God, and and she said the, she encouraged us to do that by um, simply showing up. We we love God by obeying Him, but obeying is is really about showing up. And trusting that, that we do so because he loves us, not so that he will love us, right? You guys remember that? Um, tonight we're going to see, we're going to look at one of the ways that we can show up. We're going to look at the second part of the greatest commandment. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You've probably heard this before, right? Um, but I'm curious if any of you guys really know where that comes from. Uh, Jesus isn't making something new up here. You can see he's, he's quoting. So I'm curious if, I mean, does anybody in here actually know? I'm not, this is kind of rhetorical at this point, but um, do you guys know where he's coming from? Has anybody in here ever heard of the book Leviticus? Yeah, Leviticus. Love it. Um, Leviticus gets a bad rap, doesn't it? I mean, it is the book, in my experience, I've, I've been in several conversations where people use Leviticus as the, like, the book they point to and they say Christianity is just terrible. Um, and honestly, I kind of get it. I mean, Leviticus is the book that's home to verses like this. Uh, Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. <laughs> I'm like, do we really need to be reminded of this? Like... Was this, going, was this something that was happening enough that God had to say, I need to tell you not to do this, right? Like, I feel like for most people, it just clicks. So it's, even, it's just kind of weird that it even had to be said, right? Or how about the one, the command uh, that says, you know, don't plant your field with two kinds of seed or don't wear garments that are made of two different kinds of cloth, right? I don't, what? Like, what is the problem with that? I don't get it. Like, I really don't. Like, if, that's, if, we, if these were still something we had to worry about, most of us in this room would be in huge trouble. Like, if you have a garden at home where you're growing carrots and celery together, like, Dunsky. And then if you're, wearing, <laughs> if you're wearing a coat that has, like, you know, nylon or whatever, like, some rain-resistant thing and then a warmer shell on the inside, like, that's, you're in violation. Big trouble. So I get it. At, at face value, uh, Leviticus is a list of rules and laws that we have to follow and all the punishments if we fail to follow them. Uh, it's not what some might call a feel-good book. Did I use those right, Janie? Feel-good um, but we'll see tonight that it's also, it's home to some important stuff. It's home to the second greatest commandment according to Jesus himself, right? And not only is the content important, but the reality that Jesus is referring back to this book, right? In Matthew, he's quoting Leviticus in verse 39, love the neighbor as yourself. And actually, last week we saw that uh, with the first one, love the Lord your God, he's quoting Deuteronomy. These are both Old Testament books. And the important thing to note there is that it's, it's, he's not rewriting the law of the Old Testament. He's summarizing it when he says this. Okay? He's, we see in verse 40, excuse me, that if you, well, it kind of gets cut off, but he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? 
as followers of Jesus, it's important that we understand the congruity of God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament, a.k.a. Jesus. It's the same God, and it's the same message. We have to understand that. So let's read this together. Let's dig into Leviticus a little bit. Um, I want to look at Leviticus 19, verse 18, and then again, uh, 33 through 34. So you can follow along on the screen. Verse 18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we see it. We love, the neighbor as, love your neighbor as yourself. And then again in 33, um, it says, When foreigners reside among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigners residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And in that he says, uh, does he say alien? Anyway. No, he says foreigner. Great. So two times God tells us we need to love someone as ourself, right? The first time he says, love your neighbors yourself. The second time he says, you need to love the alien or the foreigner as yourself. And I, I think it's important to note this because had God just left it at love your neighbor, we are dumb enough that we would say, oh, that just means the people I know, right? That just means I have to love the people that I like and not anyone that I don't know, right? No. He says the alien as well, which means effectively anyone you know and everyone you don't know. That's who you are to love as yourself. And it seems so simple, right? It seems so nice and rosy. Oh, everybody love everybody. That just sounds great. But when you really stop to think about this, this is so messy. I have to love everyone? I don't know about you, but the first question that comes to mind is just, why? I mean, I understand that I love God because he loved me first, but I'm pretty sure that most people I run into on the street, or most people in the world, actually, I mean, if we're talking numbers, uh, don't love me. So why do I need to love them? You know, what, what I, do I really have to love that person who just cut me off on the way to work? Right? <laughs> it's hard for me to do that. Or how about someone who goes to Oregon, right? Those ducks. <laughs> or how about that person who has different political views than I do? Do I really have to love them? Sometimes they're just so annoying, right? Or what about that guy who stole my wallet? Do I really have to love him? Or how about the guy who date-raped my cousin? Do I have to love him? Or how about that person who says my sexual identity means that God hates me? and I'm going to hell because of who I am. Do I have to love them? It's messy stuff. So why? Why do we have to do this? A week ago, I would have said it's because that's how people will know the love of God. That God calls us to love our neighbor because that's how they understand how much God loves them. And I think this is true. I don't want you to get the impression that I, I thought that and now I think something else. I think that's true. But I recently read a quote that it, it expanded my idea of why this is important, and I want to share it with you. Um, I'm going to put it up on the screen. And this is a quote. Uh, this is St. Catherine of Siena. Um, I don't know all the details on St. Catherine, but she's a saint, so you can bet she was important for some reason. Uh, but this is God speaking to her on this idea of, of loving your neighbor. So follow along. God says, I ask you to love me with the same love with which I love you. But for me, you cannot do this. For I loved you without being loved. Whatever love you have for me, you owe me. So you love me, not gratuitously, but out of duty. While I love you, not out of duty, but gratuitously. So you cannot give me the kind of love I ask of you. This is why I have put you among your neighbors. So that you can do for them what you cannot do for me. 
That is, love them without any concern for thanks and without looking for any profit for yourself. And whatever you do for them, I will consider done for me. See, I think to stop at my initial idea in explaining why we love our neighbor is to come up a little bit short. Uh, as this quote just articulated, living out the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor is actually how we live out the first and greatest commandment, right? Loving our neighbor isn't simply just how we show others the love of God. It is how we personally love our God. And if we refuse to love our neighbor, we're incapable of ever loving our God as he has called us to. So the answer to the question of why is that in order for me to love God, in order for me to follow the first and greatest commandment, I have to love my neighbor. It doesn't, you can't separate them. Okay, so hopefully that gets a little bit at the why, right? But that leads me to my second question tonight, which is how? How do I love my neighbor as God has called me to love them? You know, as the quote said, I think part of it is you have to be able to love them without expecting anything in return, right? You have to love them gratuitously, as the author put it. But I don't want to just talk about the theory of it. I want to talk practically, if we can, a little bit. Uh, as the missions coordinator at UMIN, it's my job to find opportunities for all of you to love your neighbor, right? And, I, and when I say love your neighbor, I mean intentionally engaging with someone in, on a longer-term basis than just a single interaction. Loving your neighbor means coming, along, coming and investing with these people over a certain period of time, be it uh, a week, be it two months, be it longer than that, okay? And I don't just mean someone who lives far off in some poor country, like, you know, the Dominican Republic. I mean even the people who walk the streets of Seattle. And as I've been kind of looking into these opportunities for us to get involved here in this community and communities around the world, I'm finding that there's a really important discussion going on uh, about the process with which we love our neighbor. Um, and that conversation largely has to do with two questions. They're, they're different, but they're, they're very closely related. And the first question is simply, what can I do for my neighbor? And the second question is, what can I do with my neighbor? Both, I think, are good, well-intentioned questions. But there's a relationship we're coming to understand between these two questions that we haven't quite figured out. But we know that until we figure it out, the people that we're trying to help can sometimes become negatively affected by our efforts. Like I said, I really do think the first question, how, what can I do for my neighbor, is a great place to start. But we can't stay there. At some point, the person we're trying to help has to be able to engage this with us. They have to be able to uh, take ownership of their own situation. And I want you to tune in for a second. If you've tuned out, hear this. I'm not trying to tell you that you should stop doing things for people, okay? How you give to people in need is, is your decision, okay? And I recognize that there, there is immediate need in this world. You walk down the Ave, there's people who ask you for money, right? And I'll admit that when I walk down the Ave and someone asks me for money, sometimes I give and sometimes I don't. And honestly, it's more, it's more based on what I actually, do I actually have anything to give, right? But sometimes it's because I wrestle with this. I wrestle with, is this actually helping? I don't know. I get so many different opinions, right? There's so many people who have so many things to say on that subject. And so I'm not telling you what you should do in those situations. That's for you to decide. What I'm trying to say tonight is that if, if our relationship with our neighbor, if we're going to try and invest in someone, and if that relationship um, never develops to a point where both parties, both myself and this person I'm trying to love, or myself and this group I'm trying to love, if we don't get to a point where we're both able to give and receive in this relationship, 
that it's not going to last. We can't stay at doing for people because when we stay there, we're only acknowledging the other person's need. At some point, we need to be willing to acknowledge our own need in this relationship. And the reality that we don't know how to do it all, right? We don't have all the answers. We're not perfect. And we need to open ourselves up to receive from this other person as well. It's got to be a two-way street. And in fact, many, many churches and organizations, based on the readings I've been doing, are finding that if, if we don't allow this, this opportunity for the people we're trying to love to join with us, the relationships can turn sour quickly. Um, and sometimes it's because there's this kind of a system of dependency that develops uh, between you know, the haves and the have-nots. Um, and I, I think it makes sense. Um, I mean, why would I ever learn how to make pizza when I can just walk down to Pagliacci's or order Papa John's and it's going to be way better than anything I can do on my own, right? I mean, why would I ever take all the time to develop a, a sweet dough recipe when I can just go to Trader Joe's and buy a little bag? Or why would I ever take all that time to get my own Netflix account when I can just borrow off my brother's, <laughs> right? And it's true. I do that all the time. I totally mooch off my brother's Netflix account. Sorry, Rick. Um, but the reality is that we, we're all prone to become complacent in our dependency, right? Whether it's with our food or with our life situation. And when this dependency develops and it's allowed to just stay, the, the relationship, like I said, it can turn sour. Either the people trying to help get tired of constantly trying to help and not seeing any effort on the other party's part, or the people who are receiving the help get tired of feeling like a charity case. So how do we do this? When does loving our neighbor require us to stop doing things for them and to start doing things with them? I think the answer, honestly, can be found if we look at how Jesus did it. The ministry of Jesus was one that contained both doing things for people and with people, right? Jesus performed miracles for those in need. He healed those in need. He even raised a few people from the dead. And ultimately, he bore the sins of humanity and he died for us. And I'm pretty sure that these are all things that Jesus had to do for us. I, don't, I can't think of anyone who could have done these things with him. But at the same time, his entire existence was one big example of doing something with us. He lived his life with us. He showed his disciples how to love by coming alongside them and doing ministry with them. Even after his death, he sent the Holy Spirit to be the advocate, to be with us in our time of need. His very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. So where did Jesus start shifting from the for to the with dynamic? The way I see it is Jesus did for us what he had to do to free us so that he could invite us to join with him. I'll say that one more time. Jesus did for us what he had to do to free us so that we could join with him. And you might be asking, free us from what? Good question. The reality is that all of us in this room are bound in some way from being who God has called us to be. And Jesus came to free us from that bondage. He came to free us from our spiritual, our emotional, our physical, and our intellectual bondage. And while we might not be able to love our neighbor and to, in, in the way that he did, we don't actually have to be able to. His death and resurrection made it so that we don't have to be able to do everything. His love fills in the places where our love falls short. All we have to do is give it our best. 
So again, what does this look like? How do we become a community that participates in God's redeeming work to free our neighbors? I think it looks different uh, for different people. Um, for some people, I think freedom starts with understanding that they are worth it. Understanding that God has ascribed them a high value, that God loves them. And we get to participate in helping ascribe that worth. Uh, the way we do this sometimes is simply just to spend time with people. Uh, we have partnerships with several organizations here at the Inn uh, that give you the opportunity to spend time with people and invest in them. You already heard about Young Life. Spend time with some high school students. Uh, we also have a youth department here at the church that gives you the opportunity to get involved with junior high and high school students here. And for you to spend some time with them and just show some high school kids, hey, I'm not too cool for you. You're worth it. I want to spend time with you. Uh, we also have a, a, a ministry here at UPC called Street Youth Ministries. And that gives you the opportunity to come alongside some, some of the homeless and disadvantaged youth in this community and to show them, hey, I want to get to know you. I want to spend time with you. You're worth it to me. You can also come on a trip with us. We go to the Dominican Republic in the spring. And you'd be amazed at what even a week of your time tells the kids down there how much you think they're worth it. For other people, freedom begins, I think, with education. Uh, one of the ways that I, I see us doing this here at the end is we send people all over the world every summer on deputation. And many of the sites that we send students to uh, have a heavy English teaching component. And you may not want to be an educator, you may not feel comfortable in front of a classroom, but the reality is you speak English. <laughs> and in this world, as we find it, that means something. You can come alongside people in places like Kenya or the Dominican Republic or Cambodia and you can help them by teaching them English and giving them a chance to build their own life. And still for others, freedom begins with actual freedom. Uh, human trafficking and slavery are, are real problems here in Seattle. And there's several organizations trying to end that. It's terrible. Check out places like Seattle Against Slavery. We don't have any kind of relationship with them at the end, but it's a good effort. Friends, the point is that there are, there's so many opportunities for you to get involved in some way and to live into your call to love your neighbor. And however you decide to do it, the, the thing I hope you remember is that it should never be about us. It should never be about you, okay? It's, it's unfortunate, but trying to love our neighbor can easily become more about us than it can about them, right? If we stay in this place of simply trying to do for them and not, not ever coming alongside them and allowing them to lead and acknowledging our own needs, then it's, it's really easy for that to just become about us and about feeling good about ourselves. If we're going to love our neighbors, God has called us to. We need to be working to free them, and even if that means giving up part of ourself. The exciting thing is that in this room is, is all of the potential in the world to change this city. You guys have every skill you have every resource. You're some of the most privileged and capable people to ever walk the face of this planet. Isn't that a weird feeling? You can do something significant. The question is, are you willing to come alongside those people and acknowledge that even though you have everything it takes, that you still need them? It's not about them just needing you. My prayer is that you will trust God in this process as you wrestle with this, of figuring out how can you come alongside. And my invitation is to, is to you to just try it. Just give it a try and see what you think. 
If you need some help, I would love to figure out a place for you to get involved. Friends, let's love our neighbors by making this a place where they're free to become the people God has called them to be. Let's pray. God, um, thank you. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thanks for being with me. God, we understand that um, love can be messy, and we live in a really uh, messed up world. But at the same time, God, that you are very active in that world, and that there is a lot of good happening. God, I ask that um, we wouldn't just resign ourselves to just talking about how we can help. God, that we would be a people who get involved, wherever that is, God, and that we would get involved in such a way that it's truly about the person we're trying to love, God, that it doesn't ever become about us and that we don't let ourselves um, become more concerned with what we need, God, in this, in this effort. God, I pray that whatever I said tonight made sense and that you would help it to land some of these people, God. Thank you again for this time. Be with us the rest of this week. Keep us healthy and uh, be with everyone who has a test coming up. In your name I pray, amen.